Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this evening on the Feast of the Baptism of your Son, we ask you to pour forth the Holy Spirit upon us, to guide us, to inspire us, to enlighten us, so that all of our thoughts, our meditations, our discussions may bring glory to your name, be for the good of our church, and help us grow closer in grace to you. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Hope, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Saunders, I, wanna, I just want to say welcome. It's good to have you with us, and thank you for being such a good friend of the Institute. Oh, you're very welcome. Good. So. Okay. All right, so I'm not quite used to doing teaching this way with just a camera in front of me being virtual reality, although my assistant is here because he has more technological skill than I do. Be that as it may, we have a rather esoteric talk tonight. It's entitled Word, Wisdom, and Power, Understanding the Logos of God. So what does all of that mean? Well, as a little bit of a preliminary background, we could go to some of our Greek philosophers, the good ancient Greeks. So Heraclitus looked at the world, looked at creation and said there has to be a governing reason behind it all. And that makes sense. We look at the solar system, the change of seasons, we look at the functions of our body, and it makes sense that there is some kind of governing reason. Well, he called that the logos. So it refers to this reason. But this was something that was imminent throughout creation. Anaxagoras took it a step further, and he said, yes, it's within. So it looks, we look at our body, it has design, purpose, order. Seems that there's this reason within our body governing. But it's also unto itself. And he called that the noose, N-O-U-S. So we have this intellect there, this divine intellect, this eternal intellect that also has placed this reason that governs creation. So it's imminent, it's transcendent. Take it to good old Aristotle, our friend. So Aristotle said, well, where does this intellect reside? And he posited God, the unmoved mover. Now, of course, Aristotle was not Jewish, he wasn't Christian, but Aristotle conceived of a God who is eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, and so on, who created. He's the first cause. He started creation going. And God, the noose, had this wisdom, and he put the reason into creation, so reason is orderly. So Aristotle really formed 
the arguments that St. Thomas Aquinas would actually adapt later on for proving the existence of God using reason. So that's just a little background where we get this word from. So logos, this reason, capital R, or we could say, you know, the, the divine purpose, the design, but the reason. So here we have the word, the logos. Now let's look at it from a little educational perspective. We know that words are important. We communicate with our words. So with words, we can give comfort, we can give encouragement, we educate, we can share our feelings, and words are so powerful they can even kill. Because think of what slander can do. So words have power behind them. And these words then are part of who we are. People know us by our words. So when you think of a person, you don't look at the person and simply say, well, I know the person. You have listened to that person communicate, and by those words, you know that person. So words are powerful, and words have great meaning. It's interesting, Mark Twain said that the difference between the almost right word and the right word is the difference between a lightning bug and lightning. So with really the right word, we can make a whole difference in how we communicate. So that's just a little bit of background as we approach now the sacred scriptures. So where does this word first begin? So let's go to Genesis. So if we go to Genesis chapter 1, just to read briefly, we have in the beginning, so right at the beginning. Now this isn't like all beginning, it's just trying to say this is when God started creation. And this is when time begins. God is eternal, so he has no beginning. He's eternal. But in the beginning, when God created, and here is a very special word, bara in Hebrew, which is only used for God. And this word is always saying that God is creating something new, something special, something unique. The heavens and the earth. The earth was a formless wasteland. Well, here we have, again, two Jewish words. We have one tohu, which is formlessness, and then there's bahu, which is emptiness. So it's trying to capture there's nothing. So God creates out of nothing, ex nihilo. So in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless wasteland, and darkness covered the abyss, while the mighty wind, or better word, the spirit, the pneuma in the Greek text, swept over the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's the logos, the word. God speaks, and so he speaks his word, and through that word, creation begins to unfold. But keep in mind, there's still that mention of the spirit. So implicitly, this is a revelation of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, we aren't going to go through reading the rest of Genesis. You're rather familiar with that, but Genesis makes sense. It's not meant to be a science book. We leave things to science to science, but it tells us truths about creation that are important for science. But anyway, going back, as we travel through the six days of creation, 
seventh being the day of rest, we see that God transforms day and night, so there's time. There's sky and seas, so space. There's dry land and vegetation. There's habitat. But when we look at these, this creation account, we see something that is very orderly, something that is purposeful. It has design and order. That really reflects this understanding of the Greeks of the Logos. But nevertheless, keep in mind, this is God speaking his word. And then we look at it, and God says this is good. It covers seven days, if we include the sixth of creation, Sabbath day. For the Jews, seven was a perfect number. It was also a number of the covenant. It was used almost like a verb at times, where God would where a person would say, I seven this with you, meaning I'm forming a covenant with you. So a bonding of life and love between God and his creation. So again, God created everything out of nothing, so even the stuff that's made out of creation. But then it climaxes. It climaxes when we read in verse 26, then God said, let us, notice the plural, Again, an implicit revelation of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, so on and so on. Verse 27, God created man in his image. In the divine image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then as we read, God blessed them, told them to be fertile. There's marriage. God gave them stewardship all of, over creation. So in all, we see not only a physical design that has order purpose, that has a reason behind it, but also we could say there's a purpose of life. We have the person, the human being made in God's image with a body and a soul, and that soul has intellect and will. We see the goodness of marriage and the goodness of mankind governing creation. So there's not only a physical order here involved, God has also intended a spiritual and a moral order. It's all part of the logos, the word. Now, if we go just briefly to the book of wisdom. So throughout the Old Testament, it's going to speak then about how this word of God, this wisdom of God was powerful. In chapter 9, of wisdom, we read, God of my fathers, Lord of mercies, you who have made all things by your word, and in your wisdom have established man to rule the creatures produced by you, to govern the world in holiness and justice, and to render judgment and integrity of heart. Skipping down to verse 9, now with you is wisdom who knows your works and was present when you made the world, who understands what is pleasing in your eyes and what is conformable with your commands. Skip to verse 17. Or who ever knew your counsel except you had given wisdom and sent your Holy Spirit from on high? And thus were the paths of those on earth made straight, and men learned what was your pleasure and were saved by wisdom. Now throughout that, in the text, the word wisdom is capitalized. So it's referring to Jesus. Jesus, the word, the wisdom of God. 
Now, I do have to just say this because it confuses people. Sometimes in English translations, they'll use the pronoun she or her in reference to wisdom. And in a way, it's correct because Sophia, the Greek word wisdom, is feminine. But it's incorrect because that word wisdom refers to Jesus. Like in Washington, the Greek Orthodox have a cathedral, and it's called St. Sophia's. It refers to holy wisdom, referring to Jesus, not Sophia being a girl. So if you ever come across this in English translations, remember, it's poor translation. It should be a masculine pronoun referring to Jesus, who's the wisdom, the word of God. Now with that, just to summarize a little bit about this whole notion of the reason in the universe and so on, I have a little passage from Pope Benedict. And this is what he wrote when he gave a catechesis on creation. He said, the more we know of the universe, the more profoundly we are struck by a reason, capital R, reason, so logos, whose ways we can only contemplate with astonishment. In pursuing them, we can see anew that creating intelligence, capital I, to whom we owe our own reason. Albert Einstein once said that in the laws of nature, the quote, there is revealed such a superior reason that everything significant which has arisen out of human thought and arrangement is, in comparison with it, the merest empty reflection. In what is most vast, in the world of heavenly bodies, we see revealed a powerful reason that holds the universe together and we are penetrating ever deeper into what is smallest, into the cell and into the primordial units of life. Here too we discover a reason that astounds us, such that we must say with St. Bonaventure, quote, whoever does not see here is blind, whoever does not hear here is deaf, and whoever does not begin to adore here and to praise the creating intelligence is dumb. God himself shines through the reasonableness of his creation. Physics and biology and the natural sciences in general have given us a new and unheard of creation account with vast new images, which let us recognize the face of the creator and which make us realize once again that at the very beginning and foundation of all being, there is a creating intelligence. The universe is not the product of darkness and unreason. It comes from intelligence, freedom, and from the beauty that is identical with love. Seeing this gives us the courage to keep on living, and it empowers us, comforted thereby, to take upon ourselves the adventure of life. So it's a very beautiful passage. So in the Old Testament, we have this foundation for understanding the logos and the wisdom of God. And from that really comes great power, because God spoke and he created. So there's power behind the wisdom and the logos, the word of God. Now let's move to St. John's Gospel, because this knowledge is going to become very personal. If we go to what we call the prologue of St. John, so chapter 1, right at the very beginning, verse 1, we read, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, 
the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, hopefully, up here you can see a little bit of English plus some Greek here. And this is important because it helps us understand what is going on. So in the beginning, where did we just hear that? Genesis. So again, it's trying to capture from eternity. So in the beginning, NRK, was ho logos. Now, ho here is just the definite article in Greek. So was the word. Now, the verb here, the verb to be ain, is imperfect. So it has that sense of perduring in Greek. It's that idea of it's like an eternal, ever-present kind of time. So from all eternity, we have the word. And the word, ho logos, ain, was with pros. Pros is with the God. So here we have the word, the God. What's important about this preposition process, it, we translate it with, but it's really face-to-face. -face. So you can picture the Father, the Son, the Son's the Word, face-to-face -face from all eternity. And the Son, the Word, is the perfect expression of the Father. Go back to our English understanding, the communication that the Father perfectly expresses himself, completely expresses himself in his Son, the Word. And that Word perfectly, fully, completely reflects the Father. And for all eternity, they're bound face to face. And then it goes on, and it says, and the Word was God. Now, what's important here is this is a noun. If we wanted to use an adjective, it would be theos, so it would be different. We don't use that. So it's not saying the word was God-like, but rather the word was God. And notice that we don't have a definite article here. So what St. John is trying to express is that the Father and the Son share completely, perfectly the same divinity. And this is why we say the Son is consubstantial with the Father. So here, from all eternity, the Father has begotten the Son, the Word, His wisdom. And that Word perfectly, fully, completely reflects the love of God. So go back to creation. God, the Father, spoke his word. So in all creation unfolds. Now, with that, we continue on. And it says, he was present to God in the beginning. Through him, all things came to be. So verse 3, St. John makes it very clear. Through him, meaning Jesus, the word, all things came to be. We say this in the creed, too. Remember when we say we believe in Jesus, the Son? We say, through whom all things were made. And apart from him, nothing came to be. Whatever came to be in him found life, life for the light 
of men. The light shines on in darkness, a darkness that did not overcome it. Now that brings us to an important point, because darkness came into this world. Remember we talked just a few minutes ago about creation, and God set up this order, so it's not just a physical order, spiritual order, but what happens? After Adam and Eve are in the garden, they choose to sin. They're tempted. They have their intellect and free will. Now, some people might say, well, why didn't God stop them? Well, remember, God gave us an intellect and a free will because we're created in his image. To choose to love God has to be a free choice. God doesn't force us to love him. We aren't forced to love anyone. Love's never forced. Love's a free gift of oneself to someone else. Same thing here. So God loved Adam and Eve, but they had to choose to love him. So we know as the story goes, Satan comes to tempt. And so Adam and Eve think, we can be gods. We can decide what's right, what's wrong. And we can do. We see the fruit. We can take it. We will do it without asking the moral ought. Ought I to do this? Is this a good act to do? What happens? Sin comes into this world. We call that the original sin. And sin grows because we hear in Genesis that the next big sin is Abel is killed by his brother Cain out of jealousy, a murder of all things. And sin continues on. So if we look at this, what's happened is God's creation is disrupted because of this sin. And a chasm starts forming that is separating mankind from God. When we look at the prophets, they say that no longer can their sacrifices atone for sin. It's going to take an act of God. But because sin came into this world through us, it will take also an act of man. So how can we bridge this gap? True God has to become true man to bring about the reconciliation. So if we continue on in John's prologue, we read, the Word, capital W, Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of an only Son coming from the Father, filled with grace and truth. Beautiful. So by the will of the Father, Jesus, the word and the wisdom of God, comes into this world through Mary, who's conceived by the Holy Spirit, and becomes also man. We've just celebrated that mystery, really, at Christmas time. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory the glory of an only Son coming from the Father, filled with enduring truth. So Jesus, the Word and wisdom of God, now incarnate, perfectly reveals God to us. In that mystery of the incarnation, he elevates our human nature to something even better than Adam and Eve had. Jesus, too, is perfectly going to teach us the ways of God. Now, if we go to 
the letter to the Hebrews, we find this. So chapter 1, letter to the Hebrews, we read, In times past, God spoke in fragmentary and varied ways to our fathers through the prophets. In this, the final age, he has spoken to us through his Son, whom he has made heir of all things, and through whom he first created the universe. This Son is the reflection of the Father's glory, the exact representation of the Father's being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had cleansed us from our sins and took his seat at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, as far superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. It sums it up. So we have Jesus, the word, the one through whom the Father spoke to create, and now to heal this chasm of sin, Jesus, the word, has become flesh and dwelt among us. When we think of our Lord then, how has he revealed God to us? Communicated, going back to that idea, communicated the, word, the wisdom of God. Well, in many ways, he shows as Lord that he has lordship over the physical universe. We read in the Gospels how Jesus could change water into wine or multiply five loaves to feed thousands of people or to calm a storm, to raise Lazarus from the dead, to heal the blind man, the cripple, the woman with the hemorrhage, and so on. Clearly, he has authority over all physical creation. He has authority over the spiritual side because he, on his own authority, can exercise demons, saying, come out, and they obey. He can forgive sins. He has that supernatural spiritual authority. He also has the moral authority, too. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So by his words, as well as by his deeds, he has shown us how we ought to live in that image of God. He has shown us how to fulfill the commandments. So in all, our Lord perfectly communicates to us the love of God. Now with that, we know that Jesus came as our Savior. Again, only he, true God, who became also true man, could offer the sacrifice that transcends all time. So he offered that sacrifice of himself on the cross, and by his blood, that chasm of sin was healed, and we were made at one with God. So the atonement at one with God. Now, in looking at that, our dear Lord went to that cross freely, there he offered himself as a priest on the altar of the cross. He is that lamb of sacrifice. But he did not just die. He rose to give us that hope of everlasting life. So our Lord has recreated, in a way, creation. And that's why St. Irenaeus talks about a recapitulation, that because of Jesus, everything has been reordered back into God's love. But we have to remember it doesn't stop there either, because our Lord 
after his resurrection, at the time of the ascension, told the apostles, go out. Make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach everything that I have commanded, and know that I'll be with you always until the end of the world. So the church was founded, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, who descended at Pentecost, those apostles went out to found that church, to continue the mission of the Lord, which continues to this very day. So this word and wisdom continues on through our church. We have the words of sacred scripture, the inspired revelation in written form, and we also have the sacred tradition that the Holy Spirit guiding the magisterium of the church enlightens us so that we can better understand the revelation, we can teach the revelation, we can apply it to today's world. This is why any good Catholic should have not only a good Bible, but also a good catechism. This is the revelation, the word and wisdom of God. I would encourage you, especially at the beginning of the year, take out your New Testament especially, read one chapter a day, they aren't very long, and you'll cover it this year, the whole New Testament. Take out your catechism, read two pages a day, you'll cover the whole thing in a year. And the beauty is, we'll never exhaust it. So we're never going to exhaust the word and wisdom of Almighty God, but it will empower us. It will continue to empower us to live the life we want, we need to live as a Christian. Second point is we have our sacraments. So today we do back, we celebrate the feast of the baptism of the Lord. How beautiful it is. And Father Hezekiah spoke about this a little bit before my talk started, but when a priest or anyone, like in marriage it would be the couple, performs the sacrament. It's really Christ who's performing the sacrament. But those words are efficacious. So when I, at Mass today, offered those words of consecration, those words are powerful. Just like the Father spoke the word to create, all things were created through the word. Well, through the words that a priest speaks, Christ is really speaking. And that bread and wine is transubstantiated into his body, blood, soul, and divinity. So the work continues on. And it's important to remember then that because Christ founded this church and Christ has empowered the church through the Holy Spirit, and we have the revelation, we have our Bible, we have our catechism, we have our sacraments, never should we fear. Christ is with us. Even though we're going through these difficult times of late, nevertheless, Christ is with us. The church is not going to fail. Now, let's put it into a little bit of a, I could say, maybe a modern day situation, a reality, and so on. Because when we think of the gospel prologue of St. John, it talked about darkness. And the darkness tries to overcome the light but it can't do that, even though at times it seems it can be very dark. Back this fall, I was with a group of pilgrims from the parish. We went to Poland, and on our journey, we were in several days in Krakow, seeing all the 
beautiful shrines of Pope St. John Paul II. But we did take time to go to Auschwitz concentration camp. And Auschwitz was the largest concentration camp built by the Nazis. And sad to say that millions of people were exterminated there. The purpose was extermination. Now, there were two sections, main sections. There is the original camp, which used to be a former army base, and that's where Maximilian Kolbe would be held. That was more of a workplace and a prison kind of area, whereas the Birkenau section, where Edith Stein was martyred, was really the extermination part. And if it wasn't immediate gas chamber extermination, it was forced labor, and you probably died within a month to two months. Well, anyway, we're walking through the original Auschwitz, and you, you see just the starkness of it all, see where the gallows were. You go in, see the barracks. You saw the cell where Maximilian Kolbe had died, and that was part of the cell block where they had really torture chambers, and they did executions, and next door to it was the firing squad alley. And we went to this part where they had rooms, and the rooms had like a hallway, but then there are these big plates of glass. And behind those were like piles of shoes and then a pile of luggage. I mean, really, imagine a room like I'm standing in right now, which is probably 35 by 35, filled with shoes. Or you have the baggage. Or there's the toothbrushes and combs. There's one room that had prostheses in it one that had human hair, because hair was used to make blankets. It was really, it made you, your stomach want to turn. So we're walking along through all of this, and I must have been a very pensive mood. I'm walking along, I remember like this, and one of the members of the group came up and said, Father, you seem absorbed. What are you thinking about? And I said, I'm thinking about how could this possibly have happened? And it happens when People turn away from God, and they turn away from that word and wisdom of God and think that they can take power, just like Adam and Eve thought, we can have power. We can be gods. We can decide what's right and wrong. We can have our own kingdom. We can do it, so we'll do it without ever asking the moral question, ought I to do it? When we went to the Birkenau side then, it's mostly ruins and but still learned more about it and imagine this you know a train rolls in filled with box cars of people well they come out of the box cars and immediately an ss doctor just makes a little wave with his hand meaning you look healthy you're going here you'll be going to force labor and die or he goes this way you're going to the gas chamber either way you're stripped of your clothing your head is shaved all your articles are taken from you, so they're going to be reused, so like they made blankets for the army out of human hair, and they used the luggage and the shoes for people in Germany, because the factories are making munitions and so on. And then when you're stripped naked, you're going to the showers. Well, they had their shower. They were gassed. After they were gassed, prisoners went in, took the bodies, took out any gold or silver dental work, and then the cremations took place. It was said that they could, they had eight 
gas chambers in operation, 46 crematoria ovens, and they could process, as they said, 8,000 units a day. Now, when I heard this, I thought, this reminds me of production management class when I was in college. I was an accounting major, and I had to take a class in production management, how factories work. And I thought, this is efficient production, but it's godless. And look at the evil. And the evil was there. It's all because people like Adolf Hitler and Heinrich Himmler and so many others thought we can be God. We can decide what's right and wrong. The power will decide what is right. And we can do it, we'll do it. Not asking the moral question, ought I to do it? But look at the destruction that came. It's also interesting how bad the destruction was that Heinrich Himmler actually ordered a study why so many of the SS guards turned to alcohol, drugs, and suicide. The evil consumed them. But despite that, there was light. And that light comes especially through St. Maximilian Kolbe. What a great man he was. St. Maximilian was a Franciscan, as you know, and he was arrested in the spring of 1941. He was sent to Auschwitz concentration camp. During his time there, he did his best to continue to be a priest. So he spoke the word of God to others. He spoke the truth. He gave them encouragement. As best he could, he could perform the sacraments. During his canonization process, a Jewish man, who was then just a Jewish teenager, who knew St. Maximilian, said this about him. His name was Zygmunt Gorson. To me, Maximilian was a father, a brother, a confessor, a savior. We used to talk about the Polish homeland and the goodness of man. He didn't hate the Nazis, and he taught me not to hate. The little food he had, he shared with me. Even though he was starving and his lips were swollen from hunger, he often gave his food away to others. I always will believe, as long as I live, that I survived and preserved my sanity because of St. Maximilian Kolbe. Other kids went berserk and would throw themselves at the electric fence, but he helped me to keep my sanity. Another quote from St. Maximilian himself was, no, the Nazis will not kill our souls, since we prisoners certainly distinguish ourselves quite definitely from our tormentors. They will not be able to deprive us of the dignity of our Catholic belief. We will not give up, and when we die, then we die pure and peaceful, resigned to God in our hearts. Now, that is the power of the word of God spoken through St. Maximilian Kolbe. He lived it, he spoke it, and that power conquered the evil. Now, we all know, too, that the time came in, July, in August when he was late July, when a soldier escaped, and in retaliation, they chose 10 prisoners, one of which was a Polish sergeant who had a wife and children, and they were going to be taken to the starvation bunker and left to die. St. Maximilian Kolbe freely gave his life to save another man's life.
just like Christ, the power of God's word. And so a very important lesson for us that never should we get discouraged. God's powerful word, our Savior Jesus Christ, his wisdom will always conquer evil. It will always be that light shining through the darkness. The key is we have to embrace it. And this is important for our country. You know, going back to that Auschwitz story, I thought, how could this happen? But it did. And it could happen again. When we think about it, it could happen again. And that's why it's always good to remember what our founding fathers thought about our country. President Washington said, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. John Adams, second president, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with our human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And James Madison, fourth president, father of the constitution, before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he must be considered as a subject of the God of the universe. We have staked the whole of our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government, upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. Our founding fathers knew that the success of our country was us opening our minds and hearts to the power of the wisdom and the word of Almighty God. If we look at our country today and we wonder what's wrong, maybe, well, it is. The fact is we thought we can live without God. And this is why we see a decline in so many areas of our society. So in all, for each of us here, let us remember, especially as we celebrated the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, when we were baptized, part of the ceremony was the priest blessing our ears and our lips. And he said, as the Lord Jesus made the deaf hear and the dumb speak, may he soon touch your ears to receive his word and your mouth to proclaim his faith to the praise and glory of God. So thank God we have our faith. But now we're called to be the instruments to proclaim the word and the wisdom, our Savior Jesus Christ. May God bless you. I want to highlight a couple resources that might be of interest to you that connect with this talk. Please note that everything I mention is going to be included in an email that we're going to send probably by the end of Tuesday, uh, which will have links to all these talks that I mentioned. One is uh, continuing the central theme of the talk, this relation between truth and uh, God, such that we as Catholics realize that the truth is not just some abstract thing out there, but is ultimately a person. Um, two talks I would recommend. One is by Robert Riley, which is called The Closing of the Muslim Mind. And this talk's extremely helpful uh, in understanding this, the, the consequence or the significance of the fact that God is truth. Sometimes we can understand something best when we contrast it with the opposite. 
Um, and you see that in closing of the Muslim line, which essentially the premise is, uh, there was a, a point in the history of Islam where there was basically a decision or uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, understanding that uh, reason was something in, in sort of conflict with God rather than God himself. And this leads to a very bizarre um, consequences. Uh, but, but hearing these out help us better understand our own uh, teaching. So Closing of the Muslim Line is a talk that I would recommend. Also, uh, uh, Dr. Donald gave a talk, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, which uh, explores more courses relationship between faith and reason. Um, and then also uh, two other ones, The Pope and the Jews, the story of uh, Pius XII, which was given by Father Paul Schenck recently, which explores this theme uh, of uh, St. Maximum and Kobe and concentration camps. And, and then Father Paul Scalia also recently gave a talk, Whoever Loses His Life for My Sake, on the life of St. Maximilian Kolbe, and we'll provide links to those in the um, email that follows this class. All right, let's check the Q&A box here. Where did the darkness come from? Well, darkness refers to evil. So when we think of, like, let's Lucifer. So Lucifer, who is Satan, Lucifer, the name actually means light bearer. Tradition holds that he was the head angel, uh, an archangel, a beautiful angel, and yet as an angel, he too had to decide whether to serve or not, because angels also have intellect and will. So anyway, Lucifer chose not to serve. Now, there's different, you could say, patristic ideas why that occurs, but nevertheless, Lucifer decided not to serve. Lucifer lost that light. It became the darkness. And so even with, you think of Lucifer tempting Adam and Eve, he's darkening their mind, really, to all the goodness of God. So that's where the darkness comes from. And when we look at our own world today, we know that, for instance, marriage is something beautiful. And yet, how does the media portray marriage or human sexuality? It's darkening. And it darkens the minds of many of our young people, sad to say. Where you look at the epidemic of pornography right now, and I know young people who are, I hate to say it, they're addicted because we have cell phones and so on. That's a darkening, the darkening of the mind. So it's really evil that is the root of this darkness because God is light, light is beauty. You know, there's no error in light. If light, there's truth, there's knowledge. It seems impossible to bring light into the darkness. Uh, what can we do? Well, it's is to live our faith, to be a real witness of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is supposed to be. Remember, again, in the baptism ceremony, the we're baptized and we're anointed with chrism, clothed with the white garment, priest hands a lit candle, and he says, "Receive the light of Christ." Parents and godparents, this light is entrusted to you to be kept burning brightly. Your child has been lightened by Christ. May always walk as a child of that light. May he keep the flame of faith alive in his heart. And I think it goes like, and when the and go out to meet him with all the saints in the heavenly kingdom. But that's the idea. And when you think about it, 
Just like at the Easter vigil, the church is totally dark, except for the Paschal candle. And there's one light. It penetrates the darkness. The darkness can't overcome that light of the candle. And from that candle are lit all the lights of the people that are in, all the candles that are in the church at the time. And it's a beautiful part of the ceremony, but it shows light coming into the church. And Jesus is that light who came in to dispel the darkness, to conquer sin. And that's our job. So we have to be that light. And from who we are, we can convert others. We can be the messenger of truth. Again, the logos. So we communicate the word. So how do we speak? How do we talk about our faith? Can we defend our faith? This is so important in our world today. So many people are ignorant of faith. I know people in the area where I live, young people, never baptized, never have gone to church. They don't even know who Jesus is. They think Jesus is an expletive. I hate to say it. Well, we have to prepare our young people to be able to talk about Christ, talk about our church, to defend our church. But this is critical in our world today, and we shouldn't shy away from bearing witness to the faith. You know, we can't let this darkness of, oh, well, we're a secular society. You know, religion shouldn't be in the public space and so on. Keep it within your four walls of a church. No, that's not what it's supposed to be. That's not what our founding fathers thought. They wanted the church to proclaim the truths that are the basis of morality so we could govern ourselves. Otherwise, we have anarchy. And this is what we've, think about it. Isn't this what we've lost? We've lost truth principles. It's like whoever has power is going to decide what's right or what's wrong. Pope Benedict warned about that, this dictatorship of relativism. It's like, I have power, you'll now believe the way I want or you're wrong. And that's a problem. We've lost the idea of truth. So we have to bear witness to what the truth is because without the truth, destruction comes. Aristotle said, the slightest deviation from the truth leads to a multitude of errors. And we see that just looking at how we've started legislating about human life or marriage and so on. We've lost truth and it leads to destruction and that makes us all at risk. I'll show you how, just, I didn't bring this up, but I will since you brought it up. I found this in a, mag in a magazine. It's the Defend Life magazine. And in Maryland, we had, an there's an election for governor. And there, one of the candidates' name was Ben Jealous. And he was running against the incumbent governor. But anyway, he was talking to a National Abortion Rights Action League group meeting. He's talking about how his grandmother worked for Planned Parenthood in Maryland how his mother worked for Planned Parenthood, and how his mother had an abortion of his sibling right before him. And then he, and this is a quote, quote, my mother had an illegal abortion, so on. And then he said, let's see, it is only by the grace of God that I am here. Now that's absurd. Here he's talking about defending abortion, and he's thanking God for giving the grace that he wasn't aborted. Well, he ought to be saying, I'm here, I ought to be defending life. This is where we've become absurd. 
and that we've lost the sight of truth. I mean, that makes no sense. Here, he said, by God's grace, I wasn't aborted. Well, by God's grace, you weren't aborted. You ought to be protecting everybody then. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to go on a tirade. Sorry. <laughs> there we are. Two, two quick questions uh, to end with. One is from Michael, who's uh, asking that you uh, gave a couple of quotes from the founding fathers. He was wondering what that very last one you quoted, uh, who that was from. James Madison. Perfect. Thank you. And then lastly, Mark writes in and is asking, do you think St. John was aware of the Greek philosophical concept of the Logos, or did he just know the background from wisdom slash Genesis? That's hard to say. I'm, I really don't know for sure. I don't think anybody really knows if St. John had any formal education like in Greek philosophy. Now, he would have been well-schooled in the Old Testament and would have known not only the Genesis, but then we look at the Book of Wisdom in the book of Sirach, and so that all has that same theme to it. But how much he would have been exposed to the Greek philosophers, I really don't know. But it, one reason why I brought it up is it's just because it shows that even though, like Aristotle, was a pagan, by using reason, he could come to the knowledge of one God and even lay the foundations for proofs for the existence of God. And Aristotle talked about natural law, where within our hearts there is a moral law written, a logos, a wisdom, and any person using reason can know that. Like when you think of the last seven of the Ten Commandments, you don't have to be a Jew or a Christian to know those. Any human being ought to know using reason it's wrong to steal. It's wrong to kill. And I've taught eighth graders for many years, but I have always said, you know, if you were on a deserted island, could you come up with the, ten com the last seven of the Ten Commandments at least? And eventually they get it. Yeah, all it takes is one person to kill the other, and you know, killing's wrong, or to steal someone else's money. But that's the natural law. Do good, avoid evil. So, but that's part of the logos too. And St. Irenaeus talked a little bit about that, the seeds of the logos, that if we really use our reason, which is a gift from God, we will, and we really have that searching open heart, we'll come to a belief in God. Just like even Einstein, when you think about it, granted, culturally, he was Jewish, he didn't practice Judaism, but he believed in God. He had that open heart. And using, and science made him or compelled him to want to know more about God. Thank you, Father Saunders. I appreciate um, your consistent loyalty to the ICC, but also particularly today, I know this format, it was a plot twist that happened very um, short notice, and it's, it was convenient for a lot of people who then didn't have to go out to the snow, but it also required you to do some driving. So we very much appreciate your flexibility. My pleasure. Thank you, Father. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. 
pray for us.